Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. To the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Have you ever debated whether that's a parable or not? For some people, parable means a mother goose fairy tale. And I'm not being flippant. They just think if it's, if it's parable, then it's not real. And one group that believes that, if you've ever had any dealings with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, it's very popular in their teachings to dismiss the reality of hell. Well, you would probably be very tempted. The very first thing you think is... If they're challenging the reality of hell, let's just go and talk about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And their comeback to you is going to be, that's just a parable. Therefore, what they're concluding, it's mother goose, it's, it's, it's fake, it, it's not real. And the problem is that they don't understand what the word parable is. The Bible use of the word parable doesn't limit it to being an untrue story. It's just a story that is used to illustrate coming from the Greek word, which means to lay down beside for comparison. That's all it's doing is a story that you compare to bring out another truth. It doesn't make the story itself untrue. Then there are some people that argue it has to be a parable, still sticking with this idea that a parable is not a real story because this is the only parable, if it is a parable, that uses proper names. The others really don't have proper names of anybody. But that doesn't disqualify it from being a, a parable. Um, so it's not really a fictitious story. And if we call the, rich, the story of the rich man and Lazarus a parable, it's only because we are doing that to say that this is a story that is used to illustrate something. Not just a story in itself, or you say, well, that was a nice story, but it illustrates truth. It brings out certain truths. And certainly, this does do that. So that's why we qualify it as a parable. But there's other reasons why we feel like it is. First of all, it, it follows hot on the heels of a series of parables that Luke very definitely introduced them as parables. The 15th chapter of Luke with the uh, parables of the lost and found parables, you know, the, uh, the, the lost sheep, the, the lost coin, the, the lost boy. And then you get in the 16th chapter of Luke and then there it, the 16th chapter of Luke opens up with the very clear parable, now there was a rich man. And then it goes to the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which very interestingly, not only does it follow in a long series of very clear, undisputable parables, but in the 16th chapter of Luke, he starts the parable of this uh, uh, unjust steward by saying, now there was a rich man. And then you go down and you pick up on the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and notice how he starts that. Now there was a rich man. So there's a flow, there's a continuity here that helps it to fit into what we would deem as a parable. But once again, let's be very clear, not fiction. It's true. 
Now with those rules about the parable established, then we want to get into the story itself, the parable itself. And I will read for you out of the NIV, starting in the 19th verse, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades or in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rise from the dead. The reason I started off by saying I have a very interesting story today, a very interesting parable, is because today I get to preach on eternity. Today I get to preach on heaven and hell. And there's not a lot of preachers preaching on hell anymore. We are actually living in an era that the message of, of hell has been discounted by many churches and by much of Christianity, at least in the United States. I can speak with respect to that. It's been replaced with a softer message about God's love. God's love is a great message. Anytime I preach on God's love, I am extremely moved by the story of this great undeserved love, grace that we don't deserve, but the favor of God that he gives us. Anyway. It's a wonderful story. But there's a mentality that is gripping the American church, at least, the American church, that wants to do away with the old scare tactics that they used to use to get people saved, preaching hell hot. You know what I mean? And now they are shying away from that. And they want just to preach the love of God. Just love them in. Just have them compelled by the fact that he loves them. 
we all are motivated by different things. Some of you here, you were melted by the story of God's love. And maybe that's what motivated you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You just realized he loved you. An unlovable person you may have considered yourself. A wretch, a sinner. And he loved you. And he forgave you. And it just melted you. And maybe there's others of you here, you were motivated when you realized that an eternity without Christ was intolerable. That if you do not go to heaven, if you are not right with God when you die, you're going to spend eternity in anguish and in torment. And you decided, I don't really want to take a chance on that. I am motivated to get right with God. I don't remember what motivated me to get saved because I don't remember getting saved. And some of you have never heard me say that before. You might be wondering, well, what's with this guy? <laughs> that pastor out of the church never got saved. Well, I've been living for God as long as I can remember even thinking and, and, and having cognizance. I, I, I remember just as a child being at the altar during altar time and just, just praying and, and having an awareness of God uh, and, and living every day knowing there was a God. And, and trying to live a life that pleased him. That, that those things just somehow got instilled in me at such a young age that when you live with a daily awareness of God, it governs how you live your life. As a child, I knew lying was wrong. I knew cheating was wrong. You know, you, there was certain values that were instilled in me because I believed there was a God. And I believed that he watched over us about those kind of things. So I just grew to love him and to serve him. And there's not one particular day I can remember where I just finally said, well, I, I confess all my sins and I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior because I just continued to live with an awareness there was a God and a need to ask him to forgive me if I failed him and a need to ask him for help if I needed him. So I just kind of grew into it. So I don't remember that time. But I can tell you this. I've been highly motivated by the message of God's love. And probably more motivated, to be honest with you, me, more motivated by understanding if I don't make it, I'm going to hell. Hell has been a greater motivator for me to stay on the straight and narrow. I mean, I know I'm a pastor. I know I've spent my life trying to serve God. But would it shock you if I told you there's been times I've been discouraged? Would it shock you that the enemy comes and tries to taunt me and say, why don't you just give up? Why don't you just walk away from God? It's too hard. This, this is an arduous task, an arduous path. I mean, even Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. You've got the, you've got the enemy working on you. I've got the enemy working on me. But most of the time when the enemy tries to tempt me to walk away, most of the time my, not, my thoughts are not so much, but he loves me so much that I can't. And that's a good thought. But my thoughts are, I can't afford not to make it. I've come too far to lose it all now. I'm not going to spend my life trying to love God and end up in hell because I walked away. So my motivation has strongly come from the fact that there is a hell. I, I think it'd sound a whole lot better if I could stand up and tell you that my love for God has sustained me in every moment. And it, it has sustained me many times. But hell's been a factor too. 
That'll keep you straight. I wish I could say that as a young man, I obeyed my parents because I loved them. But many times I obeyed them because they would whip me if I didn't. The paddle was a greater motivator for me than just the fact that I loved them. I loved them dearly and I still wanted to do wrong. But knowing that I was going to get whopped kept me from doing wrong. Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I, I was on the receiving end of that a few times. Just enough to know I really don't want to do that anymore. How many of you ever got whipped? You turn out all right? That's tough to go through. It's not child brutality. It's not abuse. I mean, it can be. You can certainly wound your child. That's not godly, but just getting an old-fashioned whipping. I remember my dad. He, he, how many of you remember your parent telling you, this is going to hurt you worse than it hurts me? <laughs> how many of you really believed that? <laughs> and I'm thinking as a child, well, let me try your end just to find out. It's a great motivator to keep us going in the right direction. We have these three points of the parable. There's a, there's a lesson we learn from the rich man. There's a lesson we learn from Lazarus. And then there's a lesson at the end that I will bring out to you as well. So be listening for the third point. The rich man. The destiny of a godless man. Notice I said a godless man and, and not a rich man because this is not about the wickedness of riches. This is about a rich man that happened to be wicked. Did the riches contribute to it? It, it may very well because uh, riches can be very deceiving, very compelling. But not every person that's rich is a sinner. And if you want to look at the story, not every person that's poor is a Christian. It just doesn't necessarily follow. But this rich man happened to be a sinner. So this was a godless man who was also rich and his riches may have contributed to his circumstances to some degree. But it's not about condemning or commending people based on their financial status. This man was condemned to hell not because he was rich but because he was so self-absorbed he had no compassion on others. Both of these were signs of a godless heart. So Jesus separates these two characters as he tells this story into polar opposite circumstances. He did that because storytelling had to have a hook. You pull the people in. You grab them. So when Jesus is painting this mental picture with this story he's telling and he's got people at the total end Opposite, opposite ends of uh, the economic structure, of the social st uh, stratus. So he's, he's, he's comparing these two, and he's telling, this is the story of the rich man, this is the story of Lazarus. Then you're beginning to listen. Now this sounds interesting. Where is he going to go with this? And his audience, his Jewish audience, particularly the Pharisees, and r remember the Pharisees are the ones who, in the previous parable, uh, Luke had this side comment said the Pharisees loved money. Aren't we glad he brought that out? It kind of gives us some context for this one. So the Pharisees, the ones who loved money, 
this parable, as he was telling us, was a blow against the mentality of this Jewish culture that literally believed that riches were a sign of God's blessing. And poverty was a sign of him withholding his blessing, if not his punishment for their wickedness. So they believed in that culture. You saw a rich man, God must really love him. He saw somebody in poverty and you said, what did you do? That God cursed you to be like this. So as Jesus tells this story, and you know how the story continues, how it ends up with the rich man is in hell. Lazarus is by Abraham's side in Abraham's bosom, as we say from the King James Version. And his Jewish listeners, the Pharisees, are utterly confused at this point. That doesn't match their theology. Rich people go to heaven, poor people go to hell. Rich people are blessed, poor people are cursed. So they got this, this stark contrast, and you know he's irritating the Jewish leaders as they're listening to him. One's rich, one's a penniless beggar. One feasts sumptuously, as Luke includes that, that phrase. The other fights just for a mere crumb if he can get it. One's dressed in purple and fine linen, which puts you in the, uh, in the mindset of perhaps royalty, somebody very, very high up, somebody very special, purple reserved for people of high status. The other is dressed in rags. One lives a soft life of pleasure and ease, but the beggar is in ill health with oozing ulcerated sores covering his body. And to make his plight even more graphic, Jesus didn't stop there with the oozing sores. He said, furthermore, the dogs came and licked his sores. That sounds kind of disgusting. We're not talking about pets. We're talking about the scavenger animals because they did not have dogs as pets necessarily. Dogs were nuisances. They were scavengers. And these scavengers, wherever Lazarus was, they were attracted to him. And they would lick his sores. And Jesus just threw that in to give you this extra special dimension to how these opposite, these two characters were. Now, who do you think that the Jews who were listening to this story had sympathy for. They had sympathy for the rich man because they could picture themselves as perhaps being wealthy and trying to sit down and eat a decent meal in peace and quiet and this stinky beggar keeps showing up and hanging out under his table and every time he comes, the dogs come and I can't even eat in peace. And the Pharisees feel sorry for the rich man. Somebody get this man and those animals out of here. I'm trying to eat. They don't have any compassion on Lazarus. Now, the fact that the rich man goes to hell tells us at least that hell's a real place. But if you've ever heard this story preached on, probably the main point of the sermon was the reality of hell. And even though I want to get to preach on that, and I'm going to do that, I do have to be honest enough to tell you that the main point of the parable is not about heaven and hell. It was a message to the Pharisees that their priorities were totally out of whack. 
But it just wasn't about heaven and hell. Those are kind of side issues. Those are issues that Jesus assumed would be givens. Everybody here understands there is a hell. That would, that's what Jesus would have been thinking and assuming when he's telling the story. Everybody understands there's a hell. Everybody understands there's a, a paradise, a heaven, a, a good place, some place we go to be with God. And they certainly didn't understand these concepts uh, as well as we do. We've had a better glimpse into heaven through New Testament revelations and teachings than they did. But they understood basically good people go someplace different when they die than bad people do. So Jesus took that as a given for his audience. They understand these things. So he wasn't really trying to reveal these things. He wasn't trying to teach these things. He just said everybody knows there's a hell, so let's put the rich man in hell. Jesus depicts hell with graphic realism. And this is, even though it's not the main point of the parable, this is the most fascinating glimpse into eternity by the only person who is truly qualified to teach us what it's like. Who else is going to teach us? Jesus knew. I mean, he's God. He knows what hell's like. So he is teaching us something about hell. There's another, there's another very popular movement in Christianity. I said that people don't like, by and large, to resort to preaching on hell to get people saved. They want to preach on the love of God. But there's another trend that is happening in the American church, and that is to deny the reality of hell. Hell is defined by some of these progressive theologians as being that anguish that you have in your soul for having been separated from God. Well, you know, sinners have been separated from God their whole life and never really considered it a particular emotional anguish to be in that state. They loved being separated from God. So just to go to eternity with no other physical punishment happening and be separated from God, you wouldn't think that was going to cause them some great anguish like they, they were saying, I've never been separated from God before. How am I going to cope with this? No, they lived their whole life separated from him. Hell is more than the anxiety of realizing you just didn't make it where some other people made it. There's something very real about the torment of hell. And because parable doesn't mean fairy tale, it's not a fictitious story. When Jesus said the rich man was in hell, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. And made a request. He said, can you tell Lazarus to come and just dip his finger in water and, and cool my tongue? I'm in torment in this flame. Now notice this about the rich man. There's a mentality that followed him into hell. That somehow he was socially better than Lazarus. That the rich man was put on earth to be served. And when he went to hell, he still had the mentality he was better than Lazarus. See, here he is bossing Lazarus around. Get that servant you've got over there and tell him to bring me some water. What a perverted attitude. And Abraham is guarding Lazarus. There may have been a time when you thought it was all about you. There may have been a time when you could boss people like Lazarus around. 
But I'm here to tell you it's not going to be like that anymore. Lazarus don't go anywhere. You're not fetching water for this man. You're no longer under his authority. He has no sway over you. This man is in torment. And it wasn't just mental anguish because, well, look where I am. I'm, I'm over on this side of the chasm. He's over there in Abraham's bosom. I didn't, get to gather, I didn't get to be with Abraham for eternity. So woe is me. I'm in anguish. That's not hell. Being in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Being in torment, send some water to cool my tongue. I am in torment in this flame. He was hurting in hell. Is it, is it no longer uh, politically correct to preach the reality of hell? I'm preaching the reality of hell today. I don't know how many churches in the Quad Cities have a sermon on hell today. Maybe not. I don't know how many churches in the Quad Cities have had a sermon on hell in the past year. I can tell you this, by and large, it's not popular anymore. I can tell you, if you've got quite a large number of people in your congregation, you stand a greater opportunity of offending those who are on that per politically correct mentality whose I didn't go to church to be beat up. And somebody tell me that I'm a sinner, I might go to hell if I don't get right. I want to hear something positive about my life. I've got a positive message for you. If you're not living for Jesus, you're going to hell. I know it's not popular. Talking about motivators like I opened up with. Most of you are aware that Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most popular sermons ever preached in the history of Christian preaching. He preached the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that has been documented, it has been noted, it has been published, it has been read, it has been referred to. Out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons ever preached, this one rises to the top in recognition. Now today, they don't appreciate it as much because of Jonathan Edwards' approach to ministry because he scared his congregation spitless with his description of hell. Now he tried it twice. The sermon bombed the first time. But you have to understand that Jonathan Edwards had very poor eyesight and whenever he read he had to read with the paper close to his face. And so he read. It was a transcript. He had written this brilliant transcript, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the first time he preached it, nothing happened. But he preached it again. And the second time he preached it, something happened in that church. He was not a fiery orator. You have to remember, he's reading. He's just reading this. But these words are leaping off the page and they're landing in the hearts of the people. As he drew this mental picture, sinners in the hands of an angry God, God, Dangling the sinner man over the pit of hell by a thin thread. And that thread could snap at any time or the flames of hell could burn the thread and the people would plunge into hell.
He drew such a powerful picture of what it meant to die a sinner's death. Children were gripped by conviction under that. They fell out in the aisle. They screamed out in agony and anguish. They cried out in repentance. And this man's reading this. It didn't happen before, but suddenly he sees his church going crazy as he's preaching hell hot and God angry at the sins of men. Revival hit that little church because he preached on hell. I think we need some messages on hell from time to time. I don't think it has to be an every Sunday message. But I think every one of us here need to hear, if you don't make it, if you don't make it, eternity in hell is not where you want to be. If you can't get yourself motivated to love God and serve him with all of your heart, I want you to think about what it means to live a compromised, lukewarm, half-hearted life for God and come to the end and God says, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. You couldn't get your life together. You couldn't find time in life to love me, to serve me, to give honor to me. You just kind of stumbled your way through life with a few church attendants and you just didn't get dedicated. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You know what? I don't want to go away from God. I don't want to miss heaven. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. And you don't either. And people just can't get themselves motivated to live for God. Not only people do you not want to go to hell, you don't want your loved ones to go to hell. The rich man had his regrets. He takes notice of the beggar, Lazarus. But whatever he may have felt about Lazarus in hell, however noble it may have been, however much compassion he may have had, however he may have changed his thoughts, whatever he thought about Lazarus, it was too late to make any difference. He sees that wicked people go someplace different than righteous people. He understands there's a great division between what God has waiting for the saints and the sinners. Now he understands the reality of hell. But it's too late. And strangely enough in hell, when he figures out there's no way for him to get out of there, then he turns his thoughts to his brothers and is concerned for them. Now he cares about them. Would you just send somebody to tell my brothers? But his thoughts and concerns about his brothers are what? He's too late. It doesn't make any difference now. He can't do anything about it. He now understands that the law of Moses and the prophets were enough of a moral guide that he could have been in Abraham's bosom. There was enough there. Abraham said so. Well, go, somebody go tell them the reality of hell. Tell them I went to hell. Tell them they can't go. And Abraham said, they've got enough to know better. That's the thing about it. The rich man knew better. You can't give him any excuse. He knew better. It's too late. 
Hell is the most powerful, convincing preacher of truth. People who go to heaven are already believers. They don't have to be convinced or converted. They are there because they believe. People who go to hell don't believe. They don't believe the Bible is true. They don't believe hell is real. They don't believe God would send anybody there. Hell has 100% success in converting people. There are no unbelievers in hell. There are unbelievers that went to hell, but they're no longer unbelievers. There are no atheists in hell. They were atheists when they went to hell, but they are not atheists in hell. There are no agnostics in hell. There are agnostics who went to hell, but they believe. Everybody in hell is a believer. But it's too late. You got the lessons from Lazarus. Lazarus' name comes from the Hebrew Eliezer. Eliezer just happened to be, and there were other characters in the Old Testament as well by that name, but happened to be the name of Abraham's trusted servant. The name means God helps. Now it's no accident that Jesus is telling this story that the man who went to paradise, the man who went to Abraham's bosom, had a name that said, God helps. They would have known what that name meant. They would have been able to put that together. We need to dig down a layer to get to that information. But it's not just coincidental. It has a significant purpose. Because you understand there's a subtle message here that the man or the woman who understands they need God's help, they're the ones that spend eternity with God. It's the people who are too proud to believe and understand they need God. They're the ones that they don't spend eternity with God. Those who are self-made, those who don't need God for their finances, don't need God for their health, don't need God for wisdom, don't need God for planning life, they don't need God and they won't have God. But Lazarus was somebody whose very name said God helps Lazarus. Does God help you? Do you know you need God's help? I know a lot of times we can go for several days without being particularly desperate for God's help because there's money in the bank, we got a job, and our health is good, but you get slammed with some sort of sickness where you're flat on your back and you're suddenly looking up at God saying, Help! Well, you need help. And you need him there 24-7. You always need God. But people who understand that go to heaven. Because people who need God adopt him into their life. They lean on him. They love him. They trust him. They serve him. Because I cannot live without God. But why was Lazarus a penniless beggar with a mocking name like God helps? Here's this guy that is fighting for a crumb to eat. That his name says, God helps me. And people have to wonder, what kind of lunacy is that? The guy that God's, God helps has nothing in life. And the man who doesn't need any help from God has everything. What's with that? That's the same question people ask today. If there's a God, why is there suffering? Why is there starvation if God helps people? 
if God really answers prayer, why do bad things still happen? You know, Christianity is not a package deal that gives you eternal life and then brings you material prosperity. Salvation doesn't heal all your diseases. Salvation doesn't erase all your debt. If it did, everybody come get saved. If that was the case, if salvation did all these things, all we'd have to do is just go preach to third world countries and suddenly there would be no more famine in the land. There'd be no more starvation in the land. All they do is just get saved and everything's perfect. But you know what? The word gets preached to a lot of people that their status in life doesn't change. They were saved poor, they die poor. The gospel goes to starving countries and people sometimes continue to die of starvation. So what good is salvation? Because there's an eternity. There is a balance sheet in heaven that no matter what your status in life is, that there's coming a time when things are going to improve. And for the story of the rich man and Lazarus, there is a great reversal. You can't base your devotion to God on whether he seems to answer your prayers according to your desires. You may not understand everything about why things are happening to you the way they do. You just can't blame God for it. The fact is, people who look to God for help, those are the ones who admit they're inadequate without his help. Those who cry out to him and submit to him, God adopts them as his children and he has a home waiting for them. You may not see a radical change in your physical earthly status, but there is a reversal coming for you. Those who have been blessed in this life, but they have not God in their life, there's going to be a great reversal. You're going to change places, social status with them. When you get to heaven, you're going to be the one that is in ease. You're going to be the one that is blessed. And the ones who didn't need God, but they were comfortable down here, they switch places. They suffer just like you used to suffer, even worse. The great reversal is coming. And Abraham mentioned that. He said, remember in your lifetime you received good things, speaking to the rich man. Lazarus received bad things. But now, he's comforted here. You're in agony because God's going to turn it all around. So I, I, can't, I can't convince everybody of why there is starvation in the world, why there's poverty in the world, why there's crime in the world. But I, I, I can tell you for a fact, it's not going to last forever. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've got a home in heaven, it's not going to be like that for eternity. These things are temporary. God's got something better coming for you. But that's not enough. For those who had no time for God, they're going to take your place. The big switch. The big reversal. And the final point, we've got the lessons we learned from the rich man, the lessons we learned from Lazarus, we learned about the reality of hell, we learned about the reality of heaven. But the final point that we get from this is there absolutely is no excuse whatsoever for not serving the Lord. Abraham's the God figure in this parable. Abraham speaks with God's authority, he speaks with God's voice, so to speak. And when Abraham says, I'm not going to send anybody to your brothers. They have Abraham. They have, they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let him listen to them. 
And the clear implication simply is to the rich man, there is no excuse that's going to bail you out of hell. You knew better. There's enough teaching in the law. There's enough teaching from the prophets to know that the way you lived, the way you disregarded humanity, the way you let the beggars gather around your table and you couldn't even afford a bite of food for them. You didn't care. You were annoyed by their presence. There was enough teaching in the law that you knew that was wrong. You knew God did not approve of that. The Old Testament, the law is full of teaching about compassion and caring for those who don't have as much as you have. Love and concern for those who are deprived. Scripture is full of that. And the accusation comes to him, you knew better. You knew the law. You heard the prophets. You didn't care. That was your problem. There is no excuse for going to hell. There is no excuse for missing heaven. There is no excuse for failing to honor and serve and obey God. Because God has etched into every man and woman's heart the reality that there is a God. He has burned into the heart and the mind and the soul of every person on the face of the earth. There is a moral code that comes from a moral lawgiver. They may have not heard the message of Jesus Christ, but they know right from wrong. Because God put it in their heart. There is no excuse. We are moral creatures. We're moral creatures because God created us that way. And those who refuse to live according to the understanding they have, the light they have received, are just rebels against right doing. They don't want to be bothered with these thoughts, so they reject them. They're rejecting fundamental knowledge that is installed in their heart. They are responsible for acknowledging God and seeking Him out, but they refuse to do it. They're responsible for learning more about who this God is, but they refuse to do it. They're responsible for finding out what does God expect of me, but they refuse to do it. There is no excuse that will rescue you from hell. Any argument you have in hell of why you think you should not be there will be met with one response. You knew better. You just chose not to do different. Nobody goes to hell by accident. You understand me, people? God makes no mistakes in his record keeping. Nobody slips through accidentally. There's not one soul in hell that the record keepers of heaven have to go to God and say, well, it looks like we messed up. We accidentally shipped somebody off to hell that should not be there. There are no mistakes. You go to hell because you chose not to serve God. Heaven is a choice. Hell is a choice. I'm glad that I had made my choice so far back. I can't remember when I made it, but I just lived by it. That I want to serve God. And I want to make it my lifelong goal to go to heaven when I come to the end of my journey. Every one of you here today, you are mortal beings. There's not a one of you that is immune from death. There's not a one of you that I can guarantee you 24 more hours on this earth. The oldest one here, obviously we believe that your biological clock is 
ticked off a lot more seconds than the rest of us and you we, we, we feel like you know you're probably closer to eternity than some other people here but we fool ourselves if we think you have to be old, old to die children die young people die they get in accidents they are murdered death is lurking around the corner for every single one of you and you're a human flesh and bone you could die before tomorrow comes and only the fool will sit under that kind of information and leave this sanctuary and not secure their place in heaven. Only the fool will ignore the warning. Bow your heads.